one of the more challenging things to do as voters is to know what of what is said and promise is re- really has a ring of truth to it, right? Man alive, the things that these guys and gals are saying up there and the promises that they are making. And we're all smiling because we've been here, bought the T-shirt, rode the rodeo ride or whatever you want to say. We know what this is in the United States. But before you get very uncomfortable here, I want to promise you I'm not getting ready to wax political with you today. That is not my role. You don't have to fear that me as your pastor will... Stand up here and attempt to sway you and tell you what party you should vote in or who you should vote for. It is not my role to do that. I will tell you that if you personally come to me and speak to me one on one and say, Pastor, who are you voting for and why? I'm happy to tell you that. And I will tell you all of that information that you want to know on a personal in a personal conversation. But I personally do not believe that a pastor should stand in front of his church and say, if you vote for so-and-so, it's a sin. Okay, I'm not going to tell you that, all right? So don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Here's all I will tell you as your pastor. If you are a believer, listen to me. If you belong to Jesus Christ, before we ever cast a vote, should we not pray to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, who do you want there? Should we not ask for God's will to guide us and then carefully listen to the candidates and let the spirit lay on your heart who it is that we should vote for? Well, probably, well, not probably, it will be a person who best aligns with with biblical values if you're a believer. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm not telling you who to vote for because that's not my role. So relax. Anybody upset with me yet? Good. All right. So what's hard, what I was getting at, what's hard for me sometimes is sorting out between what the candidates say is going to happen and what really is going to happen if we elect them. It's hard for me to find who's telling the truth. And I mean, they they are who they are representing themselves to be, aren't they? We're not even sure who these people really are, unless you happen to personally know one of them. And if you do, please fill me in. That will help me a little bit. Is anybody else, though, tired of being lied to by politicians and our political leaders? I am. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of promises coming out that never get fulfilled. And before you think I'm talking about one party or the other, last time I checked, every, every, all parties have lying people in it. So I'll just say that. And I'm tired of it. We just want the truth, don't we? That's what we want. We don't, we don't uh, much prefer to be around people who aren't authentic. We want the real deal. We, we cringe at fake people, at pretenders. And many politicians, and this is an absolute truth, have people that they have hired and their sole job for that politician is to project and protect an image of who that person is to be. And and they spend their entire career doing that. And I don't know how I guess they take a lot of showers. I mean, because they're just out there trying to to make that person look like often what they are not. But we admire the real deal. At least I do. And I like it when people are who they claim to be. It's one thing to live and act in such a way as to portray an image of something. And it's another to not have to act 
not have to portray because you are what you are. What you see is what you get. And frankly, whether you agree with me or not, I'd rather you be the real deal. Frankly, I deal with people who would get right in my face and say, you know, I think you're crazy and I think you're nuts. If I know you're coming at me as, as a real person, I can respect that because I happen to know that um, I'm not always right. My wife will help you really know that. OK, I know I'm not always right, but I don't want to pretend or I don't want somebody saying one thing to me and then then being something else. I like the real deal. And we're going to embark on a short, a brief series uh, for t- these next two weeks called the real deal. In the next couple of weeks, we're looking at two individuals who appear in our Bible and their their lives intersect it. And in my estimation, as I read about these two individuals, they are two people who were authentic. They were real. It's when people are confronted with challenges, when people are confronted with pressure, that a lot of us can learn some things about who they really are. Amen. Somebody gave this illustration. I didn't think it was too bad. They say humans are a lot like sponges. And if you saturate a sponge full of milk, we'll just use milk, and you absolutely saturate a sponge full of milk, when you put any kind of pressure on that sponge, what's going to leak out? It's not going to be Kool-Aid, okay? It's going to be what's inside, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's when the pressure is put on that the real me comes out. What's inside comes out. And oh, that God would help us to have the courage to be the real deal. Because it takes courage, I submit to you, to be the real item. It takes some conviction. I want us to start by looking at a man who knew that he was facing his last moments on earth. Here in Scripture, I want to look at these last moments and and tell you why I believe this man was a man who was the real deal. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts, the sixth chapter, and we'll begin our reading in the eighth verse. Acts chapter six, beginning our reading in verse eight. I invite you always, as I have said before to you, to bring your Bibles to church. I know we project the scripture, and that's very important that we do that. But uh, for one thing, technology may fail us one day. And secondly, you can then read all of the context. I don't always have time to read the entire context of what I'm preaching. And then you make sure this preacher isn't messing way up. Because then you have your Bible handy. So bring it along with you, if you will, uh, that'll help you. Acts 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Serene and Alexandria, as well as the providences of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. and They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. Now we're going to move down to uh, chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen begins to answer charges. And I'm finishing up because it's a long, you can read uh, the scripture in between. He gives them a history lesson. He takes these Jewish leaders right to the very beginning. And he makes a case for the fact that these people have rejected God year after year, time after time. And he makes a beautiful case. It is worth a read. Okay, but uh, for the sake of time, we go down to when he's he's kind of warmed up by now. Okay, so I'm I'm not going to yell these words, but I think by this time he may have been raising his voice. He said, you stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young Young man named Saul. I interrupt myself for a second to tell you that next week we're looking at that man. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We're not told a great deal about him. Was he one of the many people who, when Jesus was ministering on the earth, had encountered and listened to Jesus and had surrendered his life and believed before Jesus was crucified? We don't know. Was he perhaps one of the 3,000 people who on the day of Pentecost believed the message that Peter preached and came to Christ and became a believer? Or maybe in days subsequent because the Lord added every day in that church to those who were being saved. Was 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 he one of them? We really don't know very much about who this man is. All we know is that by the time we meet him in Scripture, he is described as a man who was full of faith and and the Holy Spirit. In Acts, uh, just a few verses before we we jumped into verse uh, uh, chapter six, verse eight. Somewhere around six, five, we're told that Stephen was one chosen among a group of men who out of a necessity, the church was growing like leaps and bounds exponentially. And they had a ministry where they distributed food to needy people, especially widows and 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 their children. And some of these ladies were being neglected. I don't think it was anything that was intentional. At this point, the apostles of Jesus were the pastors of this great big church. Again, it went from about 120 to 
3,120 in one day. And every day, more and more people were coming to Christ. So this would be a large, large celebration, a gathering where they would worship together. And people were starting to be overlooked. And the disciples felt like their primary responsibility could not be advocated. They could not give it to someone else. They were to pray. They were to teach and preach the word of God. And that preoccupied all of their time. And so the dissemination of this food, the distribution of this food was to be handled, they believed, by some people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the ones chosen was a man named Stephen. That's where we meet him. And the Bible tells us there, again, that he was known to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I want to remind you of today, though, is that although Stephen was used in extraordinary ways and literally God used him to perform miracles because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I tell you, though, that this was a flawed human being just like you and I. He wasn't a superhuman person. He was like you and I with the same capacities. He was an ordinary man, but he became an extraordinary leader in the church. And he had a great capacity that God gave him for faith and for courage. God chose to work marvelously through Stephen and they loved him in the church. I don't know how long it had been between the time he was appointed to the time that he was killed, as we read about. But I'm going to say that in spite of all of that about Stephen, I submit that he had no greater access to the Lord God than you and I do. And I submit that to whatever degree Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, you and I may be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an, this is an ordinary guy, but what I love about him was he was the real deal. Stephen was the real deal, man. He was genuine. He was the kind of guy that I aspire to be. This guy had something about him. He was the kind of person that other believers recognize. That man has so much of God in him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And they can recognize that. He was the real deal. Watch what happens to this man when he is confronted with his own impending death. When he knows that his life is not going to be spared. I'm going to suggest some things as we look through this, this message today. As we look at this story and this life of this man. I would suggest to you first that real deal people. That's what I'm going to call us. Uh, when I say us, I mean any real deal people. Real deal people will stand on truth. You see, Stephen had the courage to stand up. And this is what I love about, about Stephen. And if you want to kind of say, what am I supposed to walk out of here with? One of the things that I'm hoping you grasp is that little truth. Real deal people, real deal Christians stand on truth. Truth matters to somebody who loves the Lord. Truth matters to the Lord, so it should matter to us. So Stephen was powerfully used by the Holy Spirit, and not everybody liked him. Big shock, right? I'm just going to tell you, just camp on this for a second. When you follow the will of the Lord, some people won't like it. There it is. And that's just the way it is. If your goal in life is to make everybody like you, I, I say this with all the love I can muster up. Good luck with that. Because I've never had any success in making everybody like me. 
And, and I'm, I'm a little scared when everybody does. The Bible even says, be careful when everybody speaks well of you. So I'm pretty much thinking that if you're doing what God would have you to do, maybe this will help a few of you here today, and maybe this is all you needed. But if you're really doing what God wants you to do, there'll be some people who don't like you. So there you go. And so Stephen was doing that. Now, let me ask you a question. What if it were you? How would it strike you? I mean, what if the Lord chose to set you apart and direct you to pour yourself into ministering to others? What if he confirmed your call to ministry by uh, a great capacity of faith and through you literally performed miracles? What if you operated in the supernatural because of your relationship with him? And what if many people came to Jesus Christ, became Christ's followers as a result of your life, your teaching, your ministry. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But what if instead of drawing praise, it drew criticism? And what if instead of gratitude and appreciation from everyone, there were some who got offended by you and didn't like you? What if there were some who gathered around you and demanded that you would shut up? Can I just pause for a moment and tell you that that happens in our world today and that there are people who want to shut the voice of Christians totally off? Ask ISIS. They would murder us because of our love for Jesus Christ. But you don't have to go there. You can look all around the United States and there are a lot of people who don't want to hear the gospel and they don't want to see you following the Lord. But what if people are standing there demanding that you stop? What if you were confronted with an angry mob demanding answers from you as to why you're doing what you're doing? And then what if after you, 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 you answered them, this mob seized you and they brought you, listen, before the very leaders who killed the one that you teach about? They were the same guys. How would you feel? You know now that your life is on the line. And what if you knew that if you didn't do something quick, you're, you're looking at the last seconds of your life? As I read this, this story about Stephen, I see a man who is not intimidated. I don't see him begging. I don't see him begging for mercy or trembling in the face of all that's happening. Listen, Stephen had some options just like you and I would in this situation. One of them would have been, I'm really sorry. I apologize. I didn't didn't say these things to offend you. Please don't kill me. I have a family. Please don't take my life. You want me to be quiet? And let me just mention this to you. In the United States of America, there are many in leadership who says that our faith belongs in our homes and in our churches, but nowhere else. There are many who say we should never speak about Christ in a public place. There are many who are trying to get legislation across, even as I stand here today and make it a law that we can't proclaim the gospel like we do right now. So don't think that this isn't knocking on our doors. It is, my friend. And Stephen had an option. Stephen could have known that his life was hanging in the balance. And he could have opted to say, I'm going to preserve myself. I'm going to do what I can to squirm out of this mess. He could have taken steps backward. But instead, he was the real deal. And he stood on truth. He looked these men in the eye who murdered Jesus. And he gave them a lesson, 
about the Israelites. This man stood before the Sanhedrin. And just so you know who the Sanhedrin was, just a reminder, the Sanhedrin were people who were expertly trained in the highest form of education of that day. If you became a Pharisee, which is who the Sanhedrin was populated by, it is because you worked very hard, you were highly educated, and you were respected by the community of faith, uh, that you were the ones who disseminated the law of God, and you were the one who, if you will enforce that law and he looks into the eyes of these leaders and he puts it right back on them he says here's the truth and instead of of preserving himself i love the fact that stephen would rather die than lie and he didn't back down he stood and he spoke the truth he, wasn't, he didn't have to be nasty about it, although he got pretty angry, I think. By the time we get to, to the end of his speech, he is telling them that they're hypocrites, basically, which they were. But he confronts what they are confronting him with when they demand answers. He stands. As he reckoned it, standing on the truth was more important than his life. Stephen had beliefs to die for. Do we? Is there anything that we believe strongly enough in, that we would not denounce, that we would not back up on, that instead of living, we would rather stand on a truth and stand for a principle and stand more importantly for the one, the way, the truth, the life. Is there, is there enough in our hearts? Are we enough of the real deal that when faced with our own mortality, could we do this? It's amazing to watch Stephen as they stood there accusing him in the same way they accused Jesus. And he stood. He was the real deal. When a person would rather die than lie, to me, they're the real deal. When a person would rather die than betray the truth, they're the real deal. Our culture is just full of compromise and hypocrisy. We have a ton of people who will do and say anything to preserve themselves. We do. And we have a ton of people who will compromise almost anything if it promotes them and builds them up. And they'll step on you on the way up. Thank God for real deal people. Amen. Thank God that there are some who just stand on the truth. They live the truth. They are who they say they are. And that's what I aspire to be. I love Stephen because he was unapologetically a follower of Jesus Christ. And he knew he was about to be stoned. And he said, does it matter? I'm going to stand right here and project the truth of Jesus Christ to you. I love real deal people. And I love Stephen for that. Second thing that I want to suggest to you is real deal people stand on a commitment that they have made to Christ. A commitment that they have made to Christ. What an interesting statement that is made about Stephen here in Acts chapter 6, 15. Listen to this. I love this. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, raise your hand if you would like people to say about you, that person has a face of an angel. I wouldn't mind that. Okay. Yeah, you should raise your hand. I'd love to have a face of an angel. I think that means you're good looking. I don't know. That's not what it meant. Okay. Just so you know, they weren't commenting on his good, impeccable grooming. 
But they were seeing, and I believe what it says, what they were seeing is evidence that the Holy Spirit was powerfully present in Stephen. And there was a countenance about him, a confidence about him. Why? Because Stephen wasn't standing there alone. You need to hear that, my friend. If you ever have to stand up for the cause of Christ, you will not stand alone. God, the Spirit is right there with you. And that's what they saw in Stephen. They didn't understand it. The best word they could find is he looks like an angel. It was because the Holy Spirit was present in this man. And the Holy Spirit was present in him because of his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he belonged to Jesus. He was a devoted follower of Christ, unapologetically taught about him and lived his life for him. He loved Jesus above even his own life. He was proving it. To give his life for the sake of Christ was not too great of a sacrifice in his mind. It wasn't really, I think, even a second thought for Stephen. He knew that Jesus had already paid that price for him. Jesus had died for him. I believe he was ready at that moment. He reckoned in his heart that he would die and it was okay by him because he knew that Jesus had already done it for him and he also knew that Jesus had already procured for him eternal life in heaven. The worst thing that these people were going to do to Stephen was kill him. And then after that, for Stephen, it was glory. And he recognized that. He saw that. I, I believe that with all of my heart. And I'll tell you why in just a couple of seconds. But And he sees what the Lord has done. I think he is living in Psalms 23, 4 that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. What I see here is a man that does not have fear. Now, look, can we stop for a second and say the logical thing? If you have a mob of people crowding around you and they're bent on killing you, the logical thing would be to be afraid. Amen. Come on now. Even you tough he, he men, that would be you could get in any karate stance you want. But if you got 50, 60 guys coming at you, this ain't really the movies. You're going to get whooped and you're going to get taken and you're going to be killed. If that's what they want to do to you, they're going to tear you to pieces. A mob can do that. But I see a man standing there without fear because of who was with him and in him. And, and that's an amazing thing about Stephen. He was able to have his, his, his heart be strong because of his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has this mob closing around him. They're gnashing their teeth. They're gritting their teeth at him. And he almost seems in, in, impervious or oblivious to the impending doom. He doesn't seem to even look death in the eye. He seems to look right past it. And as scary as a mob bent on killing me or you may seem to be to us, this man seems to be without fear of it. And that's because our God granted to him his power and his grace to see something that nobody else can see. The scripture tells us in John four eighteen, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. I believe in moments like these, the Lord can help us in these things. What seems to be happening to Stephen is at the moment when most people would be the most fearful, he is given spiritual insight to see what nobody else can see. And he looks up and God allows him to see heaven open up. Can you imagine this for just a moment? It was such an astounding moment to him. 
that instead of looking around at this mob gnashing their teeth and closing in on him and picking up rocks, he lifts his eyes and he says, look, heavens open up. I see it. And there's the father. He's standing. And next to him is is Jesus. And he's standing. I had someone point out after hearing this message last night that it was they thought that it was significant. Jesus is is described in Scripture almost all the time as being seated next to his father on the throne. But they're standing. And I believe what's happening is they're ready to welcome their child home. They're standing and and he looks up and he sees them. And instead of seeing the mob, he sees past all of the physical and all of the the temporal. And he is seeing what is in, in eternity for him. And it took this fear away and it gave him this rich, rich experience. And all because he had a commitment to Jesus that he would not let go of. Again, in that moment, how many of us would it be? It wouldn't it be easy for us to say, hey, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't trying to offend how quickly we would want to back up. None of that happened with Stephen. He knew what he was standing on. And part of it was his relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ. He understood what was going on. And so the rocks begin to be crashing into his body. His life is having a way. And instead of focused, being focused on pain and anguish and instead of fear, he is filled with joy and anticipation. He's far beyond fear and beyond his physical pain because God was working in his life to get him through this, ready to receive him. As a pastor with more than 30 years experience, I will tell you, I've had a more than a few experiences of being in a room when somebody's life is leaving their body. I walked into some of those rooms and and I'm just going to be frank with you. Sometimes when you walk into a room and somebody knows they're drawing their last breath, you see nothing but fear in their face. Because they're not related. They, they don't have a relationship with Christ. They're not ready for eternity. And I've been there, sadly, as people have struggled to breathe one more breath because they didn't want to leave the world. Because they were afraid. I've had also the honor of being in a room when somebody was a saint of God and they knew they were dying. And instead of fear, there was peace and joy in their heart because they knew in a little bit they would get to see their Lord and their Savior. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of walking in a room with somebody who's had great fear in their heart because they were afraid and I've been able to talk to them. And they're on their deathbed. They have cried out to Jesus. And I promise you I've seen this. They've gone from fear and fighting to relaxing and peace because they know that their body is going to give up but soon they'll be with the Lord. There is a vast, vast difference in the attitude of a person who is ready to die against one who is afraid to die. Stephen was ready. Stephen didn't didn't have much more regard for his physical body because he was allowed to see his Savior standing there waiting to receive him. Man, I hope that happens for me. I hope God lets me see in the heaven and I hope his arms are open wide. I hope Jesus is waiting just to embrace me when I go there. 
And I tell you, it's a powerful thing when you get to be present. I will tell you one other thing that has happened to me. I've I've had some dear, and most of them have been very elderly, but I've had some dear saints, people who have been committed to the Lord for a long time. And they've come to the point of their life where they're, they're ready to die. And again, most of them have been rather elderly. There is this one lady in our church, and her name was Hazel. And she was she was just one of the wittiest, funniest ladies, sharpest mind, kept her mind very sharp. The Lord gave her such a sharpness, had her sense of humor and all right all the way to the very end of her life. And I still remember the day I walked in to visit Hazel and she was not feeling well at all. She had really been failing. And I walked in. I said, how is Hazel doing today? And she stared at me for a second. She says, Pastor. And I was like 36 years old. Never aspire to be 92 years old. <laughs> she says, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. She says, honestly, I wish I was with the Lord, pastor. I want to be with him. All of my family members who were close to me are gone and several of my friends are gone and I love the Lord and I just want to be with him. It was a few days later. It wasn't that much longer that I went in to see Hazel again and I, I she would let me come to her house and she insisted on being home and I knocked on her door and I stuck my head in. It's Pastor Dusa and she says, come on in, Pastor. And I walked in there and I said, how's Hazel today? And she said she reached her hand up to me. And usually she would joke and kid with me. But this time there was a very serious expression on her face. Nurse was there. And I walked over and I held her hand for a few moments. Just let a little bit of silence kind of fill the room. And then she looked at me. She said, Pastor, I need you to do something for me. I said, I will do anything I can for you, honey. What do you need? She says, will you pray with me right now? I want to die. I want the Lord to take me home. I want to be with him. I've lived a good life and I'm grateful for every minute the Lord gave me. But I'm ready. I want to go to heaven and I'd like to go today. And she said, you better pray a good prayer. That's exactly what she said to me. So I did. I, I, I held her hand and I said, Hazel, you're, you're certain of this. She says, I've never been more certain, Pastor. You better be a good prayer. So, so I said, what are you going to do if I mess up? She says, somehow I'll get off this bed and I'll thump you. So, so I said, okay. So I held her hand and I prayed with her until I sensed that the Lord, the Lord heard our prayer. And I simply said, Lord, Hazel's ready to come see you and meet you. And she's done being here on earth. Would you grant her her request? She's lived for you. She's had a commitment for you. Would you bless her now and allow her to come home? Would you welcome her? And when we finished praying, Hazel had tears tracking down her cheek. He says, I think you might have done it. (laughs) And after I left, it was a matter of hours. And Hazel went to be on with the Lord. And I've had that experience, too, as a pastor, to pray for somebody they've asked me to. I never would do that to you, so don't be scared. I'm not going to grab you by the hand. Oh, God, would you take them? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I had a pastor say he, he prayed some board members out of his board that way. I'm not doing that. But what I'm trying to say is when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, even death, Even violence is not enough to shake you. Because if you're a real deal person, you're ready for that. Because the worst they can do is kill you. And then you get to be with the Lord in glory. Let me quickly move on, make this last point fast. Real deal people stand on love. Here's what I love. Would we be bitter? Would we be resentful as stones were flying and crashing in and striking against our body? And life is ebbing away. 
Would we be angry? Not Stephen. He stood on love. Incredibly, this man, after being completely, um, for no good reason, killed, he was able to pray to the Lord that God would not hold their sin against him, the very thing that Jesus did. How can I tell that he had a relationship with Christ? Here it is. Because unless you have a relationship with Christ, you can't love people like this. You can't. You don't have that capacity. But real deal people have a love for people. Real deal people can even pray for their enemy when their enemy is hurting them and hating them, sneering at them. If I may be so bold, I would speculate that Peter was standing on a love. I'm sorry, that Stephen was standing on a love that God had given to him. And what I mean is I don't think Stephen was born with this capacity. I think it was because of his relationship with his God. And I love what happens because because at that point, death's sting was non-existent. Death wasn't hurting him anymore. He was ready to go. He chose to love. He stood on that. He could have chosen to be angry. He could have said, Lord, remember this against them. He could have done that. And it would have made sense to us. But he was the real deal. He wasn't bitter and he wasn't going into heaven angry. He was going grateful. Wow. Tell me that's not the real deal. I love that the Lord loved uh, that was able to work in him. I have no doubt that he was compelled by the powerful love that that God had for him. That while he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. And that's what should compel us. Amen. Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. That's a quote from Mother Teresa. And I have to tell you, Mother Teresa is on one of my heroes list. I love so much about Mother Teresa. I know she comes from a different wing of the church. Let's say it that way. But she was a founder of the Missionaries of Charity, an organization that she founded and organized in the city of Calcutta in India. Every day, once this organization was up and running, once they had a building, every day, the nuns in that organization, including her, would go out into the streets and they would find people who were physically dying. And they would bring them back to the building that they owned and they would care for these people as they died. You see, unfortunately, when Mother Teresa was active in her ministry and when she founded this ministry in India, there were so many people who were sick. And so few hospitals capable of treating them that what hospitals did a little bit similar to ours, they had a triage. And what that meant was people would come and they would be evaluated by a nurse. If the nurse determined that the efforts to make these people better would be wasted, the resources would be wasted and there was too good of a chance that they would die. They would turn them back out into the street and say, you're going to die. We can't help you. And that was happening and people were dying, literally laying on streets, dying in the filth, in the gutters. Also in India at that time and really still in existence today was a caste system where certain groups of people were just trash. They didn't matter. So if you belong to that caste, then you didn't get treated at the hospital unless there was space and there never was. Mother Teresa saw this. 
And she she became so moved by what she saw. She founded this ministry. And by God's help and God's empowering, this woman would bring these people every day off the streets. And they would bring them in. And every day they would bathe them. And they would care for them. They were not medically uh, capable of doing much for them. They simply provided care until they died. They didn't want them to die alone. They didn't want them to be out there in the streets. They brought them in. They gave them cover. And here's what this little saying comes from. They, they weren't able to do great things, but they did little things with great love. And when these people died, they knew somebody in this world thought they mattered. And that's a big deal. And this dear lady was responsible for so many people. And that, by the way, the organization still exists today. And in my estimation, by the love that she was able to give, by the love that she stood on, she proves to me she was the real deal. And there was a day when this little lady, now elderly and very frail, stood and looked our current president dead in the eye. And by the way, other leaders that were present there, too. And she challenged them on with the truth of the immorality of abortion. And she stood and pointed her frail little finger at them and said, this is a sin of America and it is wrong. And I love the speech that she gave because she had the courage to do so. And let me just say, it's safe to say it this way. She was never invited back to the White House again. But I love that she stood on love. She didn't it in a mean spirit away. She said, for the sake of these children, I give them a voice. And what this country is doing to your babies is wrong. And you can bring, you have the power. This is where she pointed her finger at our president. So you have the power to make that change. And she had the courage to stand on love. She wasn't being nasty or political. There was nothing political about this woman. All she knew is that human beings were being killed in her estimation. And I love the fact that she had the truth to speak for the unborn that day. And that she did what she did. Sadly, the week that she died, Princess Diana of England died. And you will remember who got all the fanfare and who was hardly mentioned. But let me tell you that the reverse happened in glory. When that lady went home, there was a home going. I'm sure of it because there was a woman who stood on love. And for me, she was a real deal. She had courage, man. She did stuff that none of us probably would have the courage to try. But she did it. And she did it with great love. Here's all I'm trying to say. Stephen was the real deal. And these are some of the qualities that I spoke to you about that, that to me makes him stand out. He had the courage to be the real deal. He had the courage to stand. May that be said of us. Oh, I aspire to that. That's what I want. 